Hello, my name is Jennifer Roden, and I have been a public educator for 24 years. Since I became a school psychologist in 2006, my favorite part of the job has been consulting with parents. We've laughed, we've cried, and I'm always happy to catch up over the course of years. I pride myself in conversing with parents using the same kind and sensitive tone that I would use if it were my own mother sitting across from me. I'm glad you're here, and I look forward to supporting you. Thank you for tuning in to Ask Jen Psych. Greetings, listeners. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of talking to authors, co-authors, um, Dr. Byron McClure and Dr. Kelsey Reed, the authors of Hacking Deficit Thinking, uh, Eight Reframes That Will Change the Way You Think About Strength-Based Practices and Equity in Schools. And um, they're both school psychologists. They're both doctors. And I am very excited to read their book and also just talk to them because um, as I've mentioned before, I have a lot of positive things to say about children, and I'm all about turning things positively. So when I came across them on social media, I thought, well, we got to talk to these folks because they are wonderful. Um, so, Doctors Reed and McClure, could you please uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves? Uh, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Um, what brought you to school psychology over another psychology discipline? Kelsey. Take it away, Byron. Oh, <laughs> you go first. Say ladies first. Yeah. So, Byron McClure, it's a pleasure to be on on your podcast. Thank you for for having us. And you know, for me, I, I say this was a divine trajectory for me. Um, after I finished my undergrad program, I was supposed to go out to the West Coast, and just in a a, a divine order of events. Um, I got rerouted to West Texas. And in my time in West Texas, I I started out on the track to become a clinical psychologist. And then I, I talk often about this assignment I was supposed to do. And I had to outline the demographic I wanted to work with. And, you know, I, I really struggled because the demographic I wanted to work with were you know, African-Americans, um, those, you know, who, who might not come from the best financial situations. And, you know, at that time, we, I say we identify as a black man, like we rarely sought out counseling. Mm -hmm. And so I came all the way to West Texas to go into a field where I might not be able to work with people who I've always wanted to work with. And I just happened to meet, um, this is why I say it was divine. I met the director of the school psych program and we were talking, I was telling her about, you know, my dilemma. She's like, well, there's schools everywhere. Um, there's people uh, who have to go to schools. And the great thing about working in schools, you get to work with youth, ideally to prevent um, problems before they occur or mm -hmm. before they go into adulthood. And everything she just said, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. And I ended up making that switch from clinical psychology into school psychology. And that was that was my first introduction. I had never heard of the field. I had never met mm -hmm. a school psychologist. I had never even put school and psychology together. I was familiar with education psychology, but never school psychology. But speaking with her, I made the switch and I've been 110% in uh, since that day. So that's kind of how, how I got in, into it. I worked in schools. I mean, that's kind of been my trajectory. I'm sure we'll dive a little bit deeper, but mm -hmm. I'll throw it over to Kelsey. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you. It's so interesting. Our stories are different, but kind of similar because I, so I um, went to undergrad for psychology and all along everyone is, was telling me, you know, if you get a degree in psychology, that means you have to go to grad school. And so, you know, that was ingrained in my mind right from mm -hmm. the beginning, right? Like I have to do something beyond this. And just like Byron, I was always told that my options were clinical or counseling. So I was going to all these info sessions, trying to figure out which one, trying to figure out how to apply to programs. And I kept getting these emails from like the psychology department at, um, I was at Grand Valley State University, shout out to Michigan. Hey, um, hey. But I kept getting all these emails um, from the department of psychology, like, hey, we have a new school psychology program coming to Grand Valley, like come check it out. And I kept like, I was just deleting it. Like I was like, cause I was thinking it was some undergrad. I didn't know what it was. I was okay. like, I don't know what that is. And um, kept getting the emails and I finally opened it. <laughs> I was like, let me see what this is. You're persistent. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, it was a brand new program. It was just coming um, the following year. It was going to start at Grand Valley. And so I um, opened it and I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. So I reached out to the um, to the director who was coming in and met with her, um, was super interested in it because of my mine was more kind of the interest in the big picture piece of education, a lot of the disparities that we see in education practices. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking more along the research lens of that sounds really cool. If I can go into that field of psychology, I can do maybe research related to education and mental health. Mm -hmm. So um yeah, the rest is kind of history, I guess. That's, <laughs> Just like Byron. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Now, what brought you two together to create your social emotional learning empire? I love that. Um, <laughs> so we met at one of our national conferences. This was in 2018. I always get it confused if it's 2018 or 2017. I think 2018. Um, we met at our national conference and honestly just kind of stayed in touch since then worked on a couple of projects here and mm -hmm. there together um byron was doing a lot of really cool work in the school discipline world at that time and i was a grad student so i was just trying to get as much experience as i could mm -hmm. so we were um, working on a lot of projects together and then um kind of the book came about way later on in life it was my first year as a school psychologist so and we'd still stayed in touch you. doing yeah thank you um doing um doing different projects together and um that's kind of how it happened so i i, I always tell people this you never know who you're going to meet at a conference and where mm -hmm. you know how they may kind of impact your life down the line yeah that's wonderful and really i mean first year school psychology I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm a school psychologist, and I can tell when people are wicked smart. So, oh wow, good thank for you, you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. So, could you tell us a little bit about what exactly social emotional learning is and why it should be taught in schools? And and also, is it more um, necessary after the pandemic? Yeah, and this is an important question because there's a lot of misinformation going around about what it is, mm -hmm. what it is not. Um, so I'll share from my perspective what social emotional learning is. And to me, we have my definition and then the textbook definition. The textbook definition comes from Zens and Elias. They're researchers. They have done a ton of work in the SEO field, but they describe it as a process of teaching a people kids, adults, um, and helping them acquire a set of skills 
to be successful in life. Mm -hmm. And diving a little bit deeper in that, what those skills are, and this is where um, the Collaborative for Academic Social Emotional Learning, or CASEL for short, um, they describe these five core uh, skills. And what Zins and Elias are referring to, those skills are things such as self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, relationship skills, um, uh, uh, responsible decision-making, like skills that will help people be successful in life. Mm -hmm. And for me, I take the textbook definition, uh, those skills that Castle talks about. Um, and for me, it's helping people to acquire skills that can help them navigate the world around them. Like these are just things that people need. And the academic skills are one aspect to it, but now I want to extend it further to life, right? Like we're only going to be in school for a fraction of our life. Like we're right. gonna enter into the workforce mm -hmm. and you know, whatever aspect that, that people decide to go into. And so these skills will help people to get along, to keep a job, mm -hmm. um, to be able to show up on time, to get along with your coworkers, to effectively plan. Like these are skills that people need for life. And I think this is an important question because there's, again, like I said, there's a lot of talk around what SEL is and what it's not. Mm -hmm. And from Byron McClure's perspective, that's all it is. And so you could call it what you want, but at the end of the day, it's teaching skills that will help young people and people in general to navigate the world around them. That's great. Well, and really, like the social skills, kids, a lot of kids were home for two straight years. And we a lot of times we acquire those social skills just by observing others and, you know, just paying attention to how our parents react to things, our peers, our teachers. But a lot of kids didn't have that for a long time. And I mean, let's face it, a lot of us were home with them for a long time. So we kind of, I've heard a lot of people say that they're socially awkward now, or maybe it, they, they probably were rusty for a while, but they're, they're getting it back. But um, I mean, have you gotten a lot more requests for your services since the pandemic? Yeah. And then I, I'll throw it to Kelsey from, from my angle, because I did create my own SEO curriculum. Um, we saw that there was a, a major need. And I would say there was a need prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic, because of everything that was happening, I mean, this was a traumatic experience that the world experienced uh, in a mm -hmm. shared way. And because of that, it exacerbated those issues. Some might say it was a magnifying glass to those issues, whatever, um, whatever stance you have, there's a major need that was uncovered there. And it shows, especially for, for young children, um, that social isolation was a very real thing. Um, I think of kids and families that I've worked with and they might have, you know, multiple siblings. They might have parents or caregivers who are working and they're spending time by themselves. I think about families and communities who didn't have access to technology, who were trying to navigate screens and for myself, like I have three children, I have a wife. And at that time, uh, my kids were second or third and first grade. Wow. And no, it had to be second and kindergarten. Like my daughter was supposed oh. to be starting school. And we actually ended up taking my daughter 
um, she was in like school shut down. She wasn't able to go to kindergarten. Um, and they were trying to do it like virtually. And I just looked, me and my wife, we looked at my daughter, like who had rarely used the keyboard, like trying to navigate, like sitting in front of a screen all day. We were like, no, like this isn't going to work. And so we actually enrolled her, um, into like her previous daycare. Like they, they were open. And so like as parents, like we saw the struggle for our own child, for Mm -hmm. my son, who, uh, who was in second grade, like still navigating that. Like I'm working, my wife is working. Like my son was left to, you know, his second grade self to figure it out. Like we're trying to get logged on and technology and iPads. And we're two people who have privilege. Like we had access to those things and it was a struggle for us. So where I'm going, just imagine, you know, families who don't have the privilege that that my family had, how much of a struggle it would be for them. And my daughter, I, I spoke on this, like she has some speech difficulties and like she like that, those struggles were exacerbated. Mm-hmm. And so the original question, like I believe like during that time, it really showed that, hey, we have to be able to teach these skills in a non-traditional way, which is why I created, you know, at that time it was those video-based lessons and it skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. I was putting those SEO videos out Monday through Friday and people were hungry for, there was a major appetite for social emotional learning. And again, call it what you want, but teaching young people the skills that they need to be successful. And we could talk about the business conversation a little bit later, but Mm -hmm. at the core, there was a major need for uh, for those skills. Yeah, thank you. Well, and when you think about it, you know, school districts have been, especially since No Child Left Behind, school districts have been really under pressure to get reading scores and math scores and, you know, science scores and all this stuff. It, it, that's all the government cares about is achievement in academics. But that doesn't leave the teachers a whole lot of time to model good social skills or good coping skills. So it is, I'm really glad to see that the, it's kind of turning where kids are getting more of that curriculum. Cause I know our school district is working on it. Our school counselors are teaching those skills and the kids need it and they like it and it makes them feel better about themselves. Yeah. And not only that, the data shows that when we teach these skills, when we have social emotional learning incorporated into our schools, we see higher test scores. We see higher, you know, performance academically. And I think that's what we, you know, all of us on the ground who really believe in this work have been trying to push policymakers at the top to understand that we're not just, you know, saying, because I think oftentimes people all sometimes think about this as like, you know, we're taking away from learning time, but you know, it, it's, it's contributing to, to learning time. So I, I'm, I think we're all working on that shift, which mm-hmm. I think is important. Yeah. It kind of makes me think of, I, I taught music before I was a school psychologist and I was at a little school in a little rural community. And one day the principal came on the announcements and she said, now boys and girls, if an adult walks by you and says, good morning or hello, you should look at them and say, good morning back. And it was like, something so simple like that. Like they just don't even, if you weren't taught that, then you have no idea. I'd say good morning to a little kid and they'd be like, I don't know what to do. So, you know, it's, it's important. 
Yeah. And more important, I think, um, especially for kids is explaining why, you know, like rather than because there's a there's a way where it can come off as um, authoritative, you know, where it's like, I'm in charge, I'm telling you what to do versus when you see someone, you say hello, because it's a sign of respect. And this will help you get further in life later on when mm-hmm. you show respect to people around you. So, you know, that's the, that's the core of social emotional learning, I think, is the why as well. Okay, that is important for sure. Now, to pivot just a little bit, um, how do you recommend – now, I, I thought about this question. Um, basically, when I was in grad school – it was 9-11 happened, my first couple years of teaching, and 9-11 came through, and I was in grad school. And um, the NASP, National Association of School Psychologists, for those listening, um, the recommendation at the time was don't let that video of that tragedy play over and over in front of little children because little children don't understand that it isn't just a one-shot event. It's they they think, oh, my God, it's going to happen in my town. It's happening all over the place. So that was the recommendation. Don't let kids watch the news over and over again. And then I thought back a little bit further. Um, I was second grade, maybe, when the, the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded, and we watched it. <laughs> I was in my little classroom. I think I was in second or third grade, and we watched a lot of shuttles take off in those days, and we watched it explode. And we didn't know what to think. The teachers were upset and we nobody talked about it. We they shut it off immediately. And then so as kids to cope with it, we were like drawing pictures, making jokes, writing songs about it because we were eight. We didn't know any better. So it kind of makes me think a little bit now with um, all these horrible racial things that happen in the news. You know, George Floyd is one that has happened. And I mean, there's numerous to too many to count. Um, So how would a parent thinking of, you know, you want to inform your child, but you also want to protect them from being scared or confused? um, How would you suggest parents talk to their kids about terrible racist events that happen in the news? Yeah, that's this is an important conversation. And, you know, pulling a number from Dr. Shoemaker, who was the lady I mentioned earlier, who got me into school psychology in the first place. Um, one of the things that she always talked about was prevention. And it's important for parents to understand that laying the groundwork, like putting it in the groundwork, laying the foundation is pivotal. And what that looks like is creating an environment where your children feel comfortable and safe to have these tough conversations. Because if you don't do that, once these instances come up, and as you said, unfortunately, they're going to come up, it makes having those conversations very challenging. One of the cliche but most powerful ways to create that environment is by listening to your young people, which is so underrated. And listening is important because it gives your child the space to ask questions. And that's the second one, being able to encourage them to ask questions. Um, I was a naturally inquisitive child. And so sometimes my parents would take it as a sign of talking back or being defiant, but I really just wanted to know. 
And I think one of the most powerful things that parents can do is to create an environment where they're listening to their children in a genuine way and encouraging them to ask questions. And then when your children ask questions, stick into facts. And whether it's the the challenger, that was the the shuttle, right? Yeah, um, that was whether, crazy. Yeah. Um, for me, I was in 10th grade when 9-11 happened. Um, another like prominent uh, I guess tragedy that happened was the DC sniper and whatever the traumatic situation is like creating space to allow young people to ask questions and then just providing facts. Like this is what happened and don't sugarcoat it. Right. Cause once you get to sugarcoating or trying to make it flowery, that's where confusion happens. Sure. And like there's there's no real benefit to it. So here are the facts. This is what we know and sharing that and then allowing that space for them to ask questions. And you'll be surprised like kids, they'll have great questions. They'll say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm wondering. And then, OK, and kids are very resilient mm -hmm. as well. But by creating that condition, allowing them to ask questions by sharing the facts Man, that goes such a long way and it's powerful mm -hmm. and it lets them know that they're not alone. And then just the, the last thing I'll say, and I'll throw it over to you, Kelsey, that we can do is letting our children and our young people know that it's okay not to be okay. And also letting them know that I might not have all the answers, but I'm here for you and we can figure it out together. Mm -hmm. That's so honest and trustworthy. You know, kids can tell when it, it's just disingenuous when you're sugarcoating things. And kids can tell. They don't want to be lied to. They don't want to be babied. They want the truth, just like anybody else. So that's really good advice. Thank you. Yeah. And I was going to, that last piece was what I was going to say, um, was really just kind of, um, I think oftentimes adults or parents, especially if they haven't set that groundwork, like Byron said, you know, taking the time to talk about diversity, talk about differences, talk about society at a younger age to prevent, you know, you're not scrambling when something happens in, um, you know, social media these days, there's no way to shield anyone from seeing anything. So I think just leaning into the discomfort, not trying to pretend like you're you know, comfortable if you're not comfortable and being willing to admit if you don't know the answer. And even I think taking it upon yourself to, you know, maybe do some research with your child if there's something that both of you don't know. So looking into, for example, like systemic racism together mm -hmm. online, um, you know, I think those are those are cool ways to bond with your child. You're both learning together and talking about it kind of as you're both learning. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point, too. I mean, I'm thinking, too, like now we have the Internet at our fingertips. We can find out basically anything and we can look at reputable sources, whereas, you know, in 30 years ago, we were pulling the Encyclopedia Britannica off the shelf and <laughs> not finding current events. So, yes. so we live in also, a good can, time. Can I just add, you guys are both making me feel really young because I was in second grade when... <laughs> um, 9-11 happened. I remember I was in music class and we watched it on TV too. So I'm like, Aww. I was so young. Yeah. I was teaching music class. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's so, so funny. That is funny. Yes. No, I, I. it's funny. I keep getting older and I don't know where I feel like I felt then, but I don't know. Just every year passes and another number 
I guess it's better than the alternative, right? Oh, well, thank you for that. Um, so do you, we talked a little bit about this, but what do you think was the social, emotional, academic fallout from the pandemic? And how can school psychologists p- partner with parents to close those gaps? I think one thing that Byron and I are really trying to do with this question is flip it because I think for a while we were all super hyper focused on all the things we missed, everything that, you know, our kids are behind, they're this, they're that. Mm -hmm. But rather than thinking about, you know, what are the skills, strengths, resiliency, you know, that our children, that our students developed from this experience and how can we build off of that, create new expectations, new norms for Mm -hmm. what we expect of our youth. And I think we're seeing that already with how, um, you know, we're using technology in the classroom even more now. So I think we've adapted in ways that we maybe wouldn't have, not to say, you know, that the pandemic was positive, but I think the way that we persevered through it and our education system you know, was able to adapt is something that we really need to not take, you know, make light of, I think. Um, so I, I kind of struggle with this question because we talk about closing the gap. Um, you know, Byron and I wrote Hacking Deficit Thinking. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a, a deficit yeah, that's true. way of looking at, mm-hmm. you know, our students. So like what what gaps are we closing? We need to meet them where they're at and address the skills that, um, you know, we maybe you know, would have addressed if they would have been in the building. And I think what that comes down to for me personally goes back to that social piece that we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. I I know that's not what's happening in a lot of our schools right now, but um, I'm just seeing so many challenges, especially I think with Mm self-regulation. And that's one of the the social emotional learning um, standards. Is that what what they're called? The standards is um, self-regulation. And I, I feel like kids being home kind of maybe if they didn't have a parent um, at home with them because they were working or they were left to their own, there, there wasn't as much structure as there is in a school setting. That I'm seeing kids have, are having a really hard time kind of sitting still for eight hours of the day, you know, like holding that energy in as expected in class, especially if they missed those like early formative times where they were in that structured setting. So I think what that presents us not, you know, we don't, I don't want to call it, we need to close the gap. I'm calling it an opportunity Mm -hmm. to strengthen that specific skill set. Along with, I think, adjusting our academic norms, you know, kind of of what it means to be struggling, you know, when we're, we have to compare everyone to each other rather than what the standards used to be, if that makes sense. Um, So I don't have I don't have the answers, but I think what it really comes down to is knowing your kid. Um, I think a lot of kids, a lot of students really excelled with virtual learning. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, I think, once again, to think about how we were able to see a greater picture of um, the strengths of some of our students. So some kids, you know, learn in this way, other kids learn in this way. So mm-hmm. really kind of figuring out, you know, how we can differentiate our learning in that way to better, you know, support the strengths of all of our students. I love that. It, it, it is unfortunate that a lot of school districts are basically, I mean, the states are governing over the school districts. You know, I don't think everybody's necessarily on board. They're like, let's just keep plowing ahead. Um, that's unfortunate. But I think just the more that those of us in our positions speak up and say, 
come on, like we can't make this kid all of a sudden be in this on the level that they might have been. You know, we got to we got to foster their strengths for sure. Yeah, and I think that's where to the the second part of that question, like how can school psychologists or parents like close those gaps? Like that's where school psychologists can really leverage our expertise. We have to expand above and beyond just testing and placing, which is difficult. I understand that, um, but we have a very unique skill set. Mm-hmm. Like we have to put our, our skill set to use, and part of that could be consultation, collaboration with school leaders, with teachers. Um, so that they can create the conditions where students can be successful, you know, as, as we're emerging, hopefully out of this pandemic, um, you know, social isolation from the pandemic is real. Um, the CDC, uh, they recently released a report on, you know, youth behavior and mental health trends, and, you know, we're trending in the wrong direction. And one of their solutions is school connectivity and helping our youth to get connected, whether that's with extracurricular activities, clubs, organizations, um, you know, peer activities, like school psychologists, like we can play a role in that. Um, We can get uh, students connected with outside organizations, community partners, and providing when there are uh, concerns behaviorally, socially, emotionally, creating clear pathways um, so towards, you know, community-based partners and making sure that families understand how to access mental health resources. So those are some of the things that I've, I've been calling for school psychologists to really tap into um, and things that I, I think if we do those things, we can make a difference. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, for sure. And we, um, I'm proud to say here in Erie, PA, our local United Way has created community schools. Um, I actually just, yep. my episode this week is a, I had the my school director and also someone from the United Way, a vice president, come and talk about it. But it's nice because they have all of a sudden, we it, before it was just me and the school counselor, and then all of a sudden... We have a community school director. We have a case manager who helps link with the community resources. We have a behavior specialist. We have a mental health health specialist. I mean, and they're all very nice people. And all of a sudden, it's like this village is all of a sudden in our buildings. So I have a lot of hope for the future. This is our first year with in my building, so I'm pretty excited about it. And I've already seen some some nice positive impact there. So I'm proud yeah. to share That's that with so you. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I feel like we always view like schools as disconnected from society, but we're not. And so I love when I hear more schools. I have a couple of um, schools that are community schools as well that like do make that connection and, you know, kind of bridge that gap. So that's awesome. Cool. Cool. Um, So I had one come a thought come up um, recently and without like divulging a certain student's demographics or anything like that. um, I've been doing this for 16 years and I work in a urban area and in our district, we in, in even in the surrounding areas, we have parents who are incarcerated. We have parents who may have uh, had act addiction issues or might have passed away from an overdose. And when you talk to the kids and you ask them questions like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they make comments like they don't really have many options, like maybe the options that their parents followed, they just assume that's what they have to do. I mean, when you think about it, like if your dad's a doctor, you're probably going to 
look to be something like that. Or at least when you're a kid, you're going to think, I'm going to achieve like my parent. In a situation where a kid might have um, not as much support, you know, how do we steer them from doing, following the criminal path? This is where it's important, especially for school psychologists, to get out into these school psych streets and really understand the power that we have to do more than just test. Mm -hmm. And I can answer that giving just a quick example. So where I worked, it was similar to, you know, how what you just described. And, you know, I, I always saw my young people as having unlimited potential and knowing that they are more than their conditions, their environment, or any limiting beliefs that we as adults might place on them. Um, and my role was to help them see that. Like I didn't need to, you know, I understand my role. And I, one, it was important for me not to come in with the savior mentality, mm -hmm. but as a psychologist, like how can I help you see another perspective? And one of the ways that we did that is just exposure. Like one, even before exposure, like just having conversations to show them, like, do you know this is possible? Well, here's an example of what that looks like. Talking, having conversations. One of the bigger ways that we expose our, our young people to a world of possibilities is we had, um, at that time, it was called Brotherhood, Sisterhood Assemblies. And, you know, we could have chosen another name, but students were able to go to whichever one that they identify with. Um, but nonetheless, we brought in, you know, celebrities, entrepreneurs, business people, doctors, lawyers, activists, politicians, um, so that they can have real conversations to see what's possible. Oftentimes it was people from the community. And that was one of the most powerful things that I think I've been a part of because it was showing them, look, I come from the same place that you come from in a very similar way, but here's what's possible. And just to see our young people's understanding of what they're capable of shift was amazing. What it also did was like social capital is a big thing. And shout out to Dr. Brandon Gamble, who talks about that. It helped connect our young people with mentors, with people who are actually doing it. And so if we brought in athletes, we got young people who want to play sports. Well, here's how you get to the next level. We got people who were attorneys or, you know, they did hair, barbers. Here's how you can do that. And now you got a resource to help you get from where you are to where you want to go. Even though you might not have known this, this is what's possible. And here's how you can get there. Imagine if you had a young a person who was a school psychologist who would have came into my high school. Now I see that. Mm -hmm. And now I know, hey, that's something that's possible for me to do. Because I didn't have a school psychologist. I didn't have anybody come in and talk. So like showing people, exposing them and understanding that you can do this is something that is super powerful. And what that also did, um, I just talked about how the CDC said, you know, uh, social isolation, the lack of connection is important. What that did, it allowed our people to feel connected. And what we saw by doing that, our sense of belonging, as it was measured by panorama surveys, skyrocketed and went up. My kids felt like they belonged. They mm -hmm. felt important. Like all of these different things, just by doing something that was low level. Like those are things that I think, and I'm a psychologist, like I'm a school psychologist and that's what I did. So those are things that I think we, we must 
be doing. And that's a very low level, easy way. Mm -hmm. But it also starts with having conversations, exposing our young people to a world around them, and then connecting them so that they have access to actually become those things. Yeah, that those are good points. And I don't know about you too, but my favorite part of my job is talking to the kids. They're hilarious. They have all kinds of ideas, personalities. I've learned some of the best music that I've listened to just because a kid likes it. I'm like, let's check this out. Some very G-rated rap music as well. Um, But just, you know, it's fun to get to know them. And now when I see them in middle school, they're like, Mrs. Roden, oh my gosh. And it's it's really nice to be able to make those connections and talk to them. And, and, And I think thinking of it as fun is the other step because they can feel that. They feel like a part of something and they feel like they somebody cares about them yeah and i think what it really comes down to that byron mentioned is truly believing at your core that each student is capable because they can also feel that so i think you know what's worse you know is is pretending and they they can see right through that so um i know another thing we we've talked quite a bit about is the strength-based approach So really taking the time to allow kids to understand what their strengths are, what they're good at, what they enjoy doing, what brings them meaning. And then from that, that phase, taking it to the next phase of figuring out, okay, well, what, what do you mean? What, or what does this look like? You might, you might want to be doing in the future based on this and how can we get you there and really kind of connecting that passion to, you know, to the social capital and all of those other pieces that Byron talked about but really truly believing that they're capable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of our teachers, all of our staff having that same understanding, awareness, expectations, respect for our students, which is, it's tough. It's it's really hard, but, you know, we got to get there. Yeah, it is tough. And I, you know, I'm really enjoying your book and I wish everybody would read it because, you know, just just the first thing I think I saw from you two is we we're not looking at what's wrong. We look at what's strong or you probably can say it better than me, most definitely. But shift from what's wrong to what's strong. Love yeah. it. Love <laughs> it. Because I've always you know, how many times has a parent come to you and said, well, what's wrong with my kid? Oh, sweetheart, nothing's wrong with your child. They have everybody has strengths and needs. We're going to focus on their strengths and try to support them where they need it. And, and there's no shame in that either, because everybody deserves to have something that they're good at, that they're proud of, and that can take them somewhere. So I, I like that approach. And that's, I mean, yeah. I, I wish I would have coined that phrase, but you too, I'm very proud of you. <laughs> oh, well, do you have any other words of wisdom for parents right now? Um, you know, I, I know things are getting somewhat back to normal, but I mean, I think the, the world of education, uh, teachers are kind of burnt out right now. Everybody's trying their best, but it, it's been a rough couple of years. And I really do believe it's taking a turn for the better. Um, but do you have any words of wisdom for parents as we kind of close out here? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just quickly share. You know, for parents, um, we talk about being strength-based, shifting from what's wrong to what's strong. And I'm talking to you as a parent. It's not always easy. It is a constant work in progress. And, you know, it's also important to understand that it's a balancing act. And when we say being strength-based and shifting away from what's wrong towards what's strong, it also means not ignoring that, hey, there are some things that, you know, we got to work on. Like there, I have three kids from my 10-year-old 
to my seven-year-old to my one-year-old. Yes, my one-year-old. There are things they have to work on. Like my one-year-old, he started hitting. And we have to work on those things. But he's also a very sweet kid. Like he gives the best hugs and cuddles Aww. and all of those things. Um, and so what this means is how can we be balanced in our approach so that we're not only fixating on the worst things or the deficits or the challenges, and we're not ignoring those and only focusing on like the amazing things because there's, you know, drawbacks to that as well. But how can we be balanced and holistic so that our young people can find success? And more than anything, it goes back to how I started defining what social emotional learning is. It's a process and we might not be there today, we not might not be there tomorrow, but as long as we keep trying as best we can, eventually we will help our young people to acquire those skills so that they can find success. Wonderful. Thank you. I love that. Yeah. Um, I think for me, so rather than like words of wisdom, I have like a, a task, I think, that I would be interested in parents um, doing at your next parent-teacher conference. Um, ask or focus on the strengths of your child during that meeting as much as possible. I think oftentimes we go in and it's like, okay, what are they struggling with? What's going on? Simply ask your teacher, you know, like, what are, what are their strengths? And if anything, it will at least make the teacher be prepared next time to have some strengths. It'll really kind of change the way they they look at your child to really be focusing on, you know, what are those strengths? What are what are some things that I can that I can tell the parent or tell the teacher? Or yeah, tell the parent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think um or even in IEP meetings, I I think a lot of teams are shifting to talk about strengths as well. But as a parent, I think you have every right to ask the school team who is going to be assessing your child, who's been working with your child, who should know your child, what they believe your child's strengths to be. So, um, yeah, I think you, as the parent, you have every right to, to start that conversation. That's a really good point, because, I mean, as a school professional, I try to steer the conversation in that direction. I mean, how many times have we seen somebody come in, throw their folder down and say, oh, you're a kid, blah, blah, blah. It, hold on a second. Let's talk about strengths first. Obviously, you're upset. Obviously, things have not been going well, but this this is somebody's baby that they carried for nine months and that they love dearly and, you know, maybe gives them a hard time, but still like deserves a little bit of grace. So I think that's a good self-advocacy tool, too, because I don't I've seen a lot of parents be flabbergasted by that. And, and you know what? They might have had a bad experience in school as well when they were growing up. So coming into school is scary. And then all of a sudden somebody's yelling at them about their kid. So I think that's a good, you know, for a parent to be able to say, Let's talk about my child's strengths. I think that's something I've actually never heard anybody done it do that. I usually do it for them because I'm like, mm -hmm. no, time out. Um, but yeah, that's a good I remember point. one parent doing it. This was like last year, I think. Um, and she asked, and I was like, wow, good, good for, for her. her. Like she, you know, she steered the conversation in a different direction. And I was I noted that. And I'm like, that ah, I'm gonna start telling people to do that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate your time today, um, Drs. Reed and McClure. Um, do you have any other closing tidbits before we uh, sign off here? No, thank you for this opportunity to have oh. this discussion. 
Yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. You're both so knowledgeable. And um, I'll be sharing links to your book and to your website. Um, if there's anything specific you want on, you know, on the liner notes, let me know. Um, but I really appreciate your time. Thank you so sure. much for talking to us about uh, all of our strengths. Yes, thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Ask Jen Psych. I look forward to sharing the next episode with you. If you have a topic that you would like to hear discussed, you may email it to me at askgenpsych at gmail.com or at the link in my bio. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram for more information. Drop a review if you're feeling inspired. Have a great day.